got a white chocolate mocha latte for Chiyon Chiyon? Yeah, uh-huh, that's me. I'm Kion Wolf from Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, and this is Audacious. Ah, coffee. Those of us who drink it have an intimate relationship with it, right? We have preferred brands, roasts, flavors. Some of us keep it simple and take it black. And some of us order a quad, long shot, grande in a venti cup, half-calf salted caramel mocha latte with three pumps of white chocolate, extra hot foam, extra caramel drizzle, add a scoop of vanilla bean powder with light ice well stirred. But no matter how you drink it, you keep drinking it because it does something for you. The same goes for our guests today. They're not only coffee drinkers, but have devoted their lives to displaying the wonders of coffee through their work. We'll hear from a woman who uses coffee to create art critiquing America's obsessive gun culture. And you'll find out why a man has spent 26 years trying to visit every corporate-owned Starbucks in the world. Hear how many he's visited out of more than 35,000 locations globally. But we're getting started with someone who has more than 8 million people on social media watching them make coffee. Renowned barista Morgan Eckroth demonstrates how to make coffee concoctions that most people have probably never heard of, like an elderflower rose espresso tonic or clarified key lime pie latte. And they're also known for editing together these wholesome video reenactments of subtle and delightful interactions they see in their coffee shop, like a customer walking oh so carefully as they bring their coffee full to the brim to their table, or a little kid coming up with the courage to ask for a heart to be put on the foam of their hot chocolate, or a person who dared to try straight espresso for the first time, but only nodding in approval after they've added five sugar packets. We'll get to those videos and find out what Morgan has in common with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but first, they talk with us about being the best barista in the United States, and nearly the best in the whole world. In 2022, they won the title of U.S. Barista Champion, and they were the runner-up in the 2022 World Barista Championship. So what exactly goes down at these competitions? I describe it as like a 15-minute TED Talk where you're serving a panel of judges, uh, three different courses, and you are essentially serving them like the best drinks you have ever made and ideally they have ever tasted. And so you have prepared a, a very rehearsed speech and thesis alongside, you know, you've either selected one, you know, maybe two, some competitors use multiple coffees, but you've selected a coffee um, that you feel really represents what you want to say. Usually these are like world-class coffees. Like they are some of the most expensive. You will, you'll never see them in cafes, but they're just like, you know, tippity top of coffee. In the drink, you will taste creme brulee. You'll taste yellow cake batter and melted chocolate ice cream. Lastly, you'll taste praline. This is caramelized butter, sugar, vanilla, and salted nuts. You used ones, it was a revived species of coffee from a lab? 
It was, yeah. I It was a, um, a species actually called eugenoides. And so when you think about like specialty coffee, most specialty coffee that you're drinking is called Arabica. Um, that's the, the larger species. And then from there, you have different varieties of coffee. And so uh, eugenoides is a completely different species of coffee. It's actually kind of one of the parents of Arabica. Um, and it was a species that was pretty much extinct. Like it, it didn't really exist anymore. And it was, it was reintroduced, um, you know, in a, you know, not so distant past. And it's, it's grown in very small quantities and it's an extremely rare species of coffee. Um, but I was lucky enough to be able to use that on stage, which was again, incredible. It's, it's something you will very rarely see outside of competition. And so to be able to work with it was just like a treat for me. And so you are giving this Ted talk and you've got three courses and I love that they're called courses. That makes a lot yes. of sense. <laughs> and well, I'd like to ask about how you develop them. I understand that sometimes it gets particularly sticky. Literally. <laughs> um, so the three courses that I'm serving, there's an espresso course, which is just the coffee straight up. Uh, there's a milk course, which is espresso and milk in some proportion. And you can mess around with that proportion. You can kind of mess around with the milk. There's a little bit of flexibility there. Uh, and then you have the signature beverage, which is like your showstopper. And you can pretty much do whatever you want with it. Sans giving the judges alcohol. That's like the one, <laughs> that's the one hard line on ingredients. As long as it's got coffee. As long as it's got coffee and as long as it kind of it, it kind of acts as the culmination of all the other elements in your speech. And so usually the signature beverage needs to kind of symbolically represent what you've been communicating to the judges. It needs to have touch points and synergy with the coffee like it just it needs to be everything like all at once. How I found best to approach making the signature beverage is I will kind of decide conceptually what I want the drink to represent before I even think about ingredients. So um, for the signature beverage that I made for this year's U.S. competition, I knew that my signature beverage, just because of my theme, needed to symbolically represent kind of the chemical composition of my coffee, because I was talking a lot about the different acids and how they affect our perception of like sweetness and bitterness and that stuff. Within that, it really narrowed down what ingredients I was actually able to use. And so that makes it a little bit more approachable. But starting off with the signature beverage, it's like you're just you're looking at every single drink you could ever possibly make. And, you know, that's a lot to kind of parse through. Okay, so what's cool is uh, in 2023, you came in second in the US. Congratulations. Thank you. In 2022, uh, in the worlds, you were runner up. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and in 2022, you, you were the US barista champion. What in the world did that feel like to win? It was shocking. I think I just like buckled over in that moment, like they announced uh, second place and you know, second place went up and it just kind of washed over me like, like there, there's no second, like it's first that that's what I got. Um, you know, I had not been a competitor nearly as long as, you know, some other barista champions. And so for me, it, it felt fake for a very long time. It felt like someone was going to like come and like, be like, we got it wrong. Like we're going to take away your trophy. And I think it, it honestly felt like that up until after the world championship, like even up to then there was this like internal sense of uncertainty of like, did I actually do that? Did I deserve to do that? There's just like all those questions of self-doubt. But at the same time, you know, there's of course a part of me that's like, this is awesome. <laughs> like you finally did it. And so it was, it was a big mix of emotions for a long time. So you're the U.S. barista champion in 2022. Like that's, that's a big deal. And so I wonder when you're at like a party or something 
and someone starts flapping their gums about coffee or like just bitching about pumpkin spice coffee like they know something about it and (laughs) do you ever kind of want to pull that card like actually i know what i'm talking about i was the 2022 u.s (laughs) barista champion you know i i i very rarely pull that card you know it's it's one of those things i'm very content to just kind of like hold in and just like i'm like i'll just let you do your thing we can differ on opinion here and that's fine i i think the only times i have pulled that card so to say is like me being younger me looking pretty feminine just like all these things like there is a tendency that I get talked down to like a a good amount online and so there are times when I've kind of pulled rank of like hey I know this is your perception of me but like I have some qualifications in this space and I think those are the only times but you you really have to push me to get me to like kind of step up in that way you were talking about how you know, when they said the second place and then that's it, you won. What is the difference between second place and first? Well, having gotten second place now <laughs> twice, <laughs> um, it's tricky. I Second place at Worlds, I will say, was was very difficult. I had been kind of preparing for Worlds coming directly out of, you know, the US level, it it was hard. It was like a full year of competition, like nothing ever stopped. And so when I got second at Worlds, it was, of course, incredibly exciting because I I never thought I could reach that level. Like I was kind of expecting to be out in round one. But by the time I'd gotten to finals, you know, I had this like expectation of internally of like, well, we've made it here. You have to get first. That's the that's the standard you've set for yourself. And so getting second, you know, it's like, yes, it's so incredibly exciting and like just a privilege to be up on that stage. But also it was like, well, you like you failed. You didn't get what you thought you were going to get. And so that was something that I kind of had to sit with and work through. And it was a really good like growth process to work through that. But it also kind of reinvigorated that itch of like, well, you know, you didn't get to the top, so you got to do this again. And that's kind of why I'm I'm still in the game a little bit is that that kind of drive to compete and to learn and to push myself came back full force after getting back from Worlds. You make me think about Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Hear me out. That's a new one. <laughs> Hear me out. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger won 14 world titles in bodybuilding, including mis- seven Mr. Olympias. And eventually he... He said, after 10 years, I feel like it's enough, you know, if the other people have a chance. In that light, when you look at your future, Mm -hmm. how like Arnold Schwarzenegger are you and how unlike Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) are you? You know, there there will be a point where I I step back from competition, most certainly. I think there's a lot of things I want to do in competition, ultimately, that don't involve competing, like whether it's coaching or judging or like any of those other components that help support this thing that I care about. Um, That's something that I I 100% see in my future. For me, competing has... You know, there's a portion of it where I am competitive. You know, I I enjoy doing it for kind of like the game of it. But I have found my the most noticeable points of like personal and professional and just like just kind of all that growth has come through the process of getting ready for competition, not even the competition itself, like diving that deeply into coffee and into these topics really pushes you and you you always end up learning new things. And so, you know, I'm kind of at this point where I still feel so very much like a student of coffee that I don't feel like I'm done competing simply because there are, it's such a good way for me to push myself. And I, 
I still feel that need to learn more and to continue to learn more. And, you know, I'm not ready to let that go just yet. And so it's kind of like, ultimately there will be an end, but like, for me, this process is really what it's about. Whether you are a judge or not, I imagine that at these competitions, especially you're drinking a lot of coffee, you're trying a lot of coffee and (laughs) leading up to it as you're coming up with your drinks. Have you, has your body developed any sort of immunity to caffeine? Tell me about how your body has been structured around all this coffee. I've, I've learned to moderate it very well. I, you know, I, I keep my caffeine tolerance pretty low intentionally. Um, there are a lot of spit cups that end up floating around <laughs> throughout the process of preparation, but I think a lot of it is just kind of knowing when you need to be capable of drinking coffee or tasting coffee and then planning accordingly. So, you know, on, uh, on competition days, especially, you know, we are dialing in our coffees in the morning. So that's a lot of tasting. You have to dial in on stage and that's more tasting and you want to be able to fully taste and not, you know, spit the coffee out for those. And so for me, that's, you know, thinking about, okay, I need to like eat specific foods and fruits. And like, I just need to prepare my body for that. But then it's not, oh, I need to have a coffee before that. It's just like, I need to know those will be times where I'll be having caffeine and then there will be times where I won't. And so I think pretty carefully about all of that because I feel the effects of caffeine pretty heavily. I get the shakes, like I I get all of that stuff still. Um, And so I always just try to, you know, mitigate it as best as possible. Okay. So may I ask you questions about life in a coffee shop? Have at it. I worked in retail for 20 years before getting into radio. I worked in cell phone sales in a mall, uh, which at times can get very stressful. Sure. When your cell phone's not working or it's lost or whatever, or your bill is $300, you know, people... The high stress scenario. People have feelings, right. Yeah. And you are working in a place that there are certain expectations. You know, you're in in a way a drug dealer. Sure. One of the best. Um, Yes. (laughs) They're very tasty, but yes. 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 I wonder, I'd like to hear first about maybe some difficult experience you've had with a customer in a coffee shop. And then I will ask the opposite. Sure. There was an incident like years ago where I was, I was being like stalked at work. You know, that is a thing that happened there. There was a time where like my coworker and I got maced at work, like uh, because of, you know, some very, very early COVID restrictions that we had to put in place for like our own safety as, you know, the world was like sorting out, what do we do with this? More often than not, it is people having a bad day and you just happen to be in front of them or you happen to be saying no about a very small thing that has built up on top of a, a billion other small things in their day. But, you know, you you get the odd frustration and, like, disappointed customer. And that's not a fun thing to be on the other side of, you know, especially if it happens multiple times in a day. That can, that can build up and really weigh on you as, like, am I causing pain in people's lives where I'm supposed to be doing good? Like, am I the bad guy here? And, and that is rarely, if ever, true. But, like, that's an emotion that can crop up. And then you want to make sure that you don't bring it to your next thing and be the person that they were. And the cycle just continues. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so what's an example of an interaction with a customer that was delightful? Ooh, the interactions with like kids when they come in. I think, you know, it's a it's a really cool thing to be able to kind of be an audience to like a lot of the fun, like parent and kid, like the little dates they go on. And, you know, often it's to a coffee shop because we can, you know, provide 
something for both of them and at the shop I work at and we've done this in the past at other shops too but like you know there's a lot of us who find it really fun to make it as enjoyable for the kiddo as it is for the parents so you know we'll do these cute little like pieces of art on top whether it's like a cat or a bear or like whatever it is and sometimes we even let the kid choose like we like give them a heads up and let them choose what's on their hot chocolate and just seeing like you know the excitement and like the little bits of joy that that brings like that really is like one of the coolest things about working in hospitality is being able to provide just that that little extra step up you just brought up a memory um Oddly enough, the cell phone store where I worked before it was T-Mobile, it was the coffee beanery. Oh, wow. In West Farms Mall. And I worked there, too. I really just stayed in this one room, regardless of what the <laughs> You're business You're like, whatever the business it. is going to be, I'm yeah. here. <laughs> here full time. Uh, but there was this local um, news anchor named Joanne Nesty, who worked at Channel 30. And she would come in now and then. And I had a little bit of a crush on her. And so I remember one time she came in and I wrote 30 on the phone. But she hadn't noticed it. She just sort of grabbed it and sort of hurried out. And I was like, aw, I felt a little deflated. <laughs> she came back a minute later and she said, I noticed the 30. Thank you so much. And it was That's just like, awesome. I don't know how many years later this is now, but I remember it. And it, it felt good for her, but it felt mainly good for me. Exactly. I mean, it, it's being in hospitality. Like, I like making other people feel good. And I like being that like, you know, happy little moment, you know, in their day, because it's usually just a routine and to switch it up in a way that's positive once in a while, I think is such a powerful thing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on savoring the idea of just paying attention and being present. I mean, the whole process of even making a coffee bean appear in your kitchen is the end of a very long line of a lot of work. And when people just come and order their cappuccino or coffee, and then you just see them sucking it right down like nothing. I mean, on the one hand, that's kind of what it's for. It's it, There's a time and a place. Sure. But I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the importance of savoring and what savoring your coffee can do for you. Being able to slow down and like take in something for what it is, is like a very special thing. And I think it's something that a lot of us don't often have time or energy to do. And so I try my best to like carve out that time because it's something that's meaningful for me. And, you know, if I can help facilitate that time for others through my work as a barista, like that's really the goal here. You know, I, I, I talk a lot and I think a lot about like finding joy in like little things because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty busy person. And so for me, what kind of rejuvenates me is having these just like small moments of like just enjoying myself like very intensely without distractions. And for me, that is often in the form of coffee, going to coffee shops, preparing coffee, could be different things for others. But like, that's something that I find joy in. And, you know, I think given the opportunity, I think there are other people that would find joy in that too. And so it's like, let me introduce them to this. And if they, if it clicks with them, great. If it doesn't, like, no worries. It works for me. So you're a coffee dealer and a joy dealer. Ideally. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the, that's the most optimistic end goal that I can have. I think you're there. <laughs> I think you're there. Well, thank you. <laughs> Morgan Eckroth, thank you so much for talking with me. Of course, this was super fun. Thanks for having me. You can check out Morgan's signature coffee drinks and delightful reels at Morgan Drinks Coffee on Instagram and TikTok. When we get back, using coffee as a watercolor and a community builder. 
I was creating this space where people would walk up to me because at first they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm painting with coffee. And they would sit down because they're like, what? <laughs> Plus, what does attempting to visit every Starbucks in the world do for one man's mental health? I'd like to think that I have reached the self-actualization phase of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I am much happier now than I have ever been in my life. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Who makes me my coffee and whose smile is so sweet? I think I've fallen in love with the barista. Now we'll go there every day for white chocolate latte. And every single time. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and today we're talking with people who have done extraordinary things with coffee. In a little bit, you'll meet a man who's devoted his entire life to visiting as many Starbucks locations as he can. But our next guest will have you looking at your cup of coffee and the world around you in a different way. Bianca L. McGraw is an art teacher at Tapestry Charter High School in Buffalo, New York. And yeah, she drinks coffee, but... She paints with it, too. She'd been using coffee as a watercolor tool with her students, but then she began using it as she created art in public spaces. Her collection, Caffeinated Injustices, is her response to gun violence in her community. I really started to indulge into my new um, art pieces was after the shooting that took place um, in Buffalo, New York. And a shooting took place at a supermarket that is located in a Black community, which is also a food desert. And I think I just had a lot of anger. I had a lot of anger because I, for one, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, enough said. I also attended Northern Illinois University. We had an on-campus shooting in 2008. And so it just was really rough having all these connections to mass shootings. And I was just like, I love coffee. I live, breathe coffee. And it's an addiction in a sense, but what is this juxtaposed to America's gun addiction? So I decided to just paint because I was hurting. And so through the painting with the coffee, I just started creating space. Like I was just going out to community and just paint with coffee, just painting. How do you describe what you were painting with this coffee? 
outside of the gallery, I think it was more watching me paint because basically what I was doing was I was painting these portraits of local uh, black artists within Buffalo's community. And what I was using was their image after asking them, of course, um, if I can use their image, but also talk about gun violence or issues within those pieces. And so I would go out to cafes, bars, events, open mics, shows, breakfast, lunch, brunch, uh, restaurants. And I would just start painting. Literally, I'm showing up at a dinner place and opening up coffee to paint these huge pieces. And basically, they would be portraits, like I said, of artists, and it would be intertwined. So an example would be our poet laureate um, for Buffalo, New York is Julian Hainsworth. And so in the midst of painting her within her um, hair, I included the shopping carts to represent 10 of the victims that um, unfortunately uh, were murdered that day. And so basically I was creating this space where people would walk up to me because at first they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm painting with coffee. And they would sit down because they're like, what? <laughs> and it was building this idea of space. So when you're coming into the gallery, you're seeing these pieces, but these pieces were really made within the community. Like they were creating this space. I was healing through having these conversations with just a lot of people through Buffalo that I had never met before and just interactions with the idea of creating space. Like a lot of my art is about creating safe space or creating space that is otherwise denied um, to me or people within in the community. And so it just felt really encompassing. And it was weird to have a show that was showing these pieces. And so I guess to be real descriptive of an image, Let's see, I have DJ, a local DJ, DJ Psych, is one of the paintings. And it has a picture of him with his DJ setup as best as I could because <laughs> he moves his hands a lot <laughs> DJing. So there's a focus on him spinning and there's a DJ table and his setup. And it says thoughts and prayers and the speakers blow, uh, exploding out bullets. And so it's this idea of spinning thoughts and prayers as I think about um, the type of gun policies that we have that are not being dealt with. And so, yeah, it's just a spin on it. See what I did there? I see what you did there. And also in a lot of these images in this Caffeinated Injustice series, a lot of these images have firearms in them. How does it feel to spend so much time painting the very tool that's used to violate the peace that you long for, advocate for? I think that's a good question. I think the whole idea was to focus on the firearm. The first piece is actually a semi-automatic. Um, it's just missing the magazine part, um, but it is the focus of the outline of it. And so it was the one that really started this approach to it. And so it was like drawing these components because what is the addiction to guns? And then the next is what is the addiction to standing up to them? Uh, the next, the second piece is a, it wasn't supposed to be me, but it ended up looking like me. And there's, it's facing like my forehead. So there's the semi against um, my forehead and that interaction of standing up to it. The earring that is displayed says Black Lives Matter. And so it's a lot of like integral parts that are happening within it. There's a sense of motion. This is why they're being done in the public um, because it allows for opening up conversations. Um, it also allows for me as artists trying to figure out how do I do advocacy when you feel like you don't have a way to do so. And in order for me to do that, I was able to do this with these images. So the guns are a big part of that because they're a big part of the situation or the erasure 
of lives that are taking place in these communities. Can we talk about the using of the coffee? I mean, do you order a coffee at the counter and bring it to the table and dip a brush in it? How does it go? So the coffee is disgusting. (laughs) I love the coffee, but the coffee I'm painting with is so old and nasty. The older, the better. Um, because it's skunky. So I use layers on layers. It's gross. <laughs> um, you'd mentioned that you had this personal experience back in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, shooting at Northern Illinois University. Um, if it's okay for you to talk about it, um, what happened? So in 2008, on February the 14th, I would like to say, I think we were 10 years before, I believe uh, Parkland had their shooting. Um, we had a gunman who used to be a, um, a NIU Husky. Um, he came in and he opened fire on the auditorium, which killed five students. He also uh, took his own life. Um, it happened at three o'clock. It ended by 3.06. But to us, it felt like an eternity. Um, but for me personally, that day, I was actually supposed to go to that building to reserve those auditoriums because we were doing RA trainings. And so it was weird because every time I tried to go to this building, which I had not been on campus, everyone kept stopping me. So my partner was visiting and was like, oh, I need the key. I was like, okay, I'll go to my office. I'm in my office. Students are stopping me like, you should buy us lunch before you leave. And I'm like, well, I got to go do this. No, no, eat with us. And it was just all these like small occurrences kept happening. And the moment I was done, I was walking towards the exit door. The police officer walked up to me because I work for Residence Life. And so he's like, we need to shut the building down. And so there we are securing the building, checking bags, you know, it was felt like it was all the wrong things that we were doing. I had to make sure my staff was okay. The students are hiding under tables. It just, they were so scared. And it's like, you're in activation mode because you're so used to dealing with crisis, being the staff person that I was. And so it's not until I finally leave, uh, NIU was in DeKalb, Illinois, and I was able to leave because the issue is residence life never goes home when issues occur. Students, staff, people leave, but residence life stay because we have students who are international, can't go home. So we're working. And so we're working. I believe this is the time that Obama was still a senator. He was running. Um, and so, you know, I'm there. I'm helping doing things that were for other students who were doing um, like graphic design work to help to get the stuff for the obituary. They had this uh, um, event, you know, reflection event that they had. So I helped do some of the pay, uh, designs and stuff for it. And so when I went home to Chicago on the South side, I just, at that moment, I just burst, burst down in tears because I just felt like it didn't, it affected me, but it didn't, but it really did. And it was really hard. And so I came back as an artist to create these cutouts with another artist, um, Bradley Cahill. And we made these Husky cutouts um, to put in front of Cole Hall. It was called Cole Hall at the time. And it just, it was, here we are trying to use our art to heal. And I think all of my art from that time to now was this idea of art as a Band-Aid in a sense, um, but also as this loud voice that is still able to advocate um, or create space for those who just need to just process. And so that's how I felt like art was being used for me um, and it's being used now. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? Currently, I am using the coffee uh, to paint a portrait of Tyler Lewis, who is a who sorry, who was a student at Buffalo State College. He was murdered on university at Buffalo's campus. He was a black student. 
he was murdered by a white assailant and the family still has no answers. And so I have been painting it in the location of what a student was stabbed in front of uh, Richmond Hall, which is a part of university uh, at Buffalo's North Campus. I actually used to be the hall director that ran that building. And I used to work at Buffalo State where he um, attended. And so I felt personally connected about what's happening and also the fact that when it comes to Black bodies, we feel like our stories get buried. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but I feel like if it was a white student that was murdered on university at Buffalo's campus, it would be an uproar. And it's just almost silent. And so I'm doing it to bring back awareness as best I can with that. Anything else you want to say that we missed? I need coffee. Need a coffee. <laughs> How do you take your coffee, by the way? Is, okay, you is... can bleep this out because Dunkin's probably not a sponsor. But if they are, and if Dunkin' Donuts is listening, <laughs> I love a medium iced coffee, six creams, and four caramel swirls. Um, and so I support all local cafes, but also Dunkin'. I love Dunkin'. <laughs> well, Bianca L. Period. McGraw. <laughs> thank you so much for all you do. And thank you for talking with me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Check out Bianca's artwork on our Instagram at Bianca L. Period. We'll also have a link to her work at ctpublic.org slash audacious. After the break. I am trying to take the long view of how do I organize my life in such a way that I can still be Starbucking when I'm 100. One man's lifetime quest to visit every Starbucks in the world. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. No sense at all. I get to talk. I get to talk. That's a small. That's a small. But the Vindy and the Grande, that don't make no sense at Starbucks. I'll be filling up my When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Nearly 53 years ago, the first Starbucks opened its doors at Pike Place Market in Seattle. Little did the people running this scrappy little shop know that it would one day turn into the largest coffee shop chain in the world, with more than 35,000 locations in 80 countries. And there was also no way they could have known that for the last half of those years, a man who goes by the mononym of Winter 
would be doggedly visiting as many of their corporate-owned stores as he possibly could. In fact, he's committed to doing it for the rest of his life. And he will never finish. Now, to be fair, way back in 1996, Winter did think that this was a feat he could conquer. At that time, there were only 1,400 Starbucks locations. Piece of cake, or sip of coffee. Here he is in a 2006 documentary about him called Starbucking. This idea popped into my mind just out of the blue. What if I tried to visit every single Starbucks? Uh, the next thing that popped into my mind was, well, I've never heard of anybody else doing this, so this is my, my original idea, my one idea that I've ever had that I could do that nobody else had done. Winter joined me a little over a month ago from a hostel in Taiwan. At the time, he'd visited 18,458 locations with a record of 29 stores in a single day. So after all this time, why does he say he does it? I love challenges. I love puzzles. This is a major logistical puzzle of, uh, you could call it a resource optimization puzzle. Uh, I've grown to love traveling. It was that first road trip that I took out to the West Coast that really cemented the idea of Starbucking in my head. Before, it had just been floating around as a, I may or may not do this, but once I hit the open road and saw all these cities, I just fell in love with the process. And then uh, later on, I fell in love with the photography. I really enjoy taking the pictures and documenting these. And then once I created a website and people started using it as a resource for discovering Starbucks around the world, that gave me yet another reason to continue. But now uh, what drives me most is I have found that the best path to happiness for me, and I think for other people, if they try it, is to find a purpose in life and pursue that. So uh, I'd like to think that I have reached the self-actualization phase of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I am much happier now than I have ever been in my life. When you started in 1997, 26 years ago, there were like 1,400 Starbucks stores. And then jump ahead to the end of 2020, there were almost 33,000. By the way, this is the masterful work of uh, producer Jessica Severin D. Martinez, who's also in a previous life was an auditor. Um, then recently, Starbucks announced their triple shot reinvention strategy and said they want to increase the number of stores to... 55,000 globally by 2030. Um, when I read this, I thought, oh, so Winter's going to be doing this for the rest of his life. Yeah? I fully see it as a lifetime project. It's actually interesting that uh, I'm speaking to you from Taiwan, uh, which is a Chinese culture, because one of the things said about the Chinese is that much more so than Westerners, they tend to take the long view of things. So where I am in my life right now, I am trying to take the long view of how do I organize my life in such a way that I can still be Starbucking when I'm 100. Obviously, I have to live to be 100. And that has meant making lifestyle changes, uh, you know, starting a decade ago, but progressively just to improve my health, change the diet, 
optimizing my financial resources. So yeah, it's it's very much a long view and you're absolutely right. I fully intend to do this for the rest of my life. You mentioned finances. How do you pay for all this? Uh, well, I'm a computer programmer and as a single with no debt, no children, it allows me to put a lot of my money into the travel. Um, also, I got away from the bad habit that I had when I was young of being very materialistic and just buying stuff because it made me feel good. In 2011, I decided to see if I could make urban camping, just camping out in a car, a lifestyle choice. And that's been working out for 12 years now. It saves a tremendous amount of money that I've been able to put into travel and savings. What has been a Starbucks that you visited that every time you think about it, you smile or you get all tingly inside? What's that Starbucks? Uh, in the city of Fukuoka, in the south of Japan, there's a store that I, his name I can't pronounce, but it's something like Dazaifu Tenmago. And it was designed by a famous Japanese architectural firm. And, uh, once you Google it, and I recommend that you do, you'll see this structure that has these wooden beams that run through the entire length of the store. And you won't believe that you're looking at a Starbucks. Everybody I show these pictures to says, I can't believe that's a Starbucks. And it's just one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, Starbucks related or not Starbucks related. It's just a great piece of architecture. What was the location that stood out in a way that kind of sucks? Uh, wow. To be honest, there's a lot of those and they're opening those up more and more of those in America. Uh, to me, those are the locations where they've abandoned the third place and they're opening grab and go or pickup only locations or mobile or drive through uh, only locations. Starbucks was built on the third place concept. Uh, you know, the, the former CEO that made Starbucks what it is today, Howard Schultz, was very proud of bringing the third place to America. He wrote an entire book, and I think there's an entire chapter about the third place in his book, Pour Your Heart Into It. And the third place, just to be clear, is is that place that we can all go that's not home or work. Exactly. And meet and have chance conversations and build community, keep community. Yeah. Yes. And in my opinion, that is what has made Starbucks the company that it is today. So it just makes me sad that in, in my hometown of Houston and many other cities around the country, they have shut down some of the, the seating at some of these Starbucks and turned them into grab and go only stores. So, yeah, that, that's what really bums me out. So when you go into a Starbucks, what do you order? I keep it simple. Uh, just the brewed coffee simply because the smallest amount of caffeine that I can drink. And it has to be caffeinated. That's a rule. That's your rule. That That's the rule that I created for myself. It feels in the spirit of what I'm doing that I have to drink coffee and it has to be caffeinated. Black? I just drink it black. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's what I usually drink. If I can't, then I'll get a shot of espresso. Has this consumption of caffeine ever hurt you? I'm pretty sure that it has. Um, back in the days uh, when Starbucks was just overbuilding in the United States 
And I would go to 20 to 25 stores a day or multiple days in Southern California. I would get these crazy headaches. Uh, I would barely sleep. Um, the day that is depicted in the Starbucking documentary where I reached my record of 29 stores, uh, I even started itching. I am queasy, nauseated, bloated. I feel like I'm going to throw up. About the only good thing is that I don't have a headache maybe because of those pills that I took. I feel like I'm going to hurl at any moment. That was not pleasant. I, honestly, I can't do that anymore. Uh, my body can't handle it. And now I'm topping out at, I think the my biggest day has been either 17 or 18 stores. Uh, I think the days of 20 to 25 stores are, are, are done for me, sadly. Is there a holy grail Starbucks that you have yet to reach? Like, is there one really special one that if you could transport there, you would? No, not really. Not anymore. There were. And those were the three roasteries that I had not yet seen. Starbucks has six roasteries around the world. Three of them are in the United States. And those were relatively easy for me to see. Uh, and the others are Milan, Tokyo and Shanghai. When I finally got to all three of those during this trip, I honestly did feel like a great weight had been lifted off my shoulders because like those roasteries are often described as like a Disneyland for coffee lovers. And the one in Japan, uh, you have to actually get a digital ticket to get in. I mean, can you believe just the, the idea that you would need a ticket to go into Starbucks is kind of wild, right? Uh, the one in Milan, I had to wait. There was a line around the block, so I had to wait to get into to that one. You get recognized from time to time. What's that like? 25 years after I started getting publicity, it never gets old. It really doesn't. And one of the reasons is, I mean, honestly, it's a stupid idea. I mean, you're going to try and visit every Starbucks in the world. You know, it's like big whoop. And then all of a sudden, like the media noticed and, you know, there's a documentary and all these interviews and all I'm doing is going to Starbucks. But of course, when you probe deeper that I'm, I'm doing more than that. But no, it is it is still a, a thrill every time I get recognized. Your next big milestone is 20,000 stores. First of all, do you can you guess where that location might be geographically? And regardless of that, how do you plan on celebrating 20,000? Um, no, I, I can't guess simply because uh, I'll, I'll be somewhere in the 19,000s when I wrap up this trip next February. Uh, it's very possible that it would be in South America simply because I do try to coordinate my milestones to be in countries that I haven't been before. Um, there are a few select Starbucks around the world that serve alcohol. Uh, having a uh, coffee cocktail would not be a bad idea for the 20th store. After all this time, how would you say that this has changed you? The earliest ways that it started to change me was it taught me what I could live without. Um, I assumed that I needed a home. Now I don't really have a sense of home and I don't feel like I need one. I've learned to push my limits. Also, the amount of resources that I was consuming, pursuing this in a wildly irresponsible way, um, has taught me uh, more about responsibility 
and discipline, both when it comes to finances uh, and also the environmental aspect of it. And also in terms of balance, I mean, just doing Starbucking every day, all day, all the time and making that the pure focus, that that is not a balanced life. And I'm sure everybody has heard that, you know, I think the philosopher, I don't know if Aristotle or one of the philosophers said that the, the, the good life is a balanced life. So I have to balance the Starbucking with uh, other activities, uh, health, of course, uh, social responsibility. All those things are much more in balance now than when I was, you know, in my 20s. When you die, the New York Times obituary will lead off with this, with, with this lifelong commitment to documenting all the Starbucks locations in the world. and. I wonder if there's any part of you when that obituary comes out from the afterlife, if if that's such a thing. I wonder if there's part of you that wants to be like, well, yes, obviously, headline about me, but I'm also so much more. Absolutely. In fact, even though I keep talking about the purpose-driven life, visiting every Starbucks in the world is not actually my purpose. My purpose is to use the recognition that this project gets me in order to communicate pro-social ideas. So what I really care about is putting positive ideas out into the world. And if I can improve somebody's life uh, who happens to hear my ideas in the context of an interview about Starbucking, I will have considered that much more meaningful than all the Starbucks that I could ever go to. And I know you can relate to this because I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and you've talked to many guests who want to try and help others through some message. And I would like to do the same, you know, uh, in in many different messages, one of which is uh, live your best life by finding a purpose that is your own and, and pursuing that. I would love it if the New York Times would mention that and not just the Starbucks thing. Well, Winter, thank you so much for talking with me. No, thank you. I don't get very many opportunities to speak uh, about Starbucking on such a deep level. And that's what I really enjoy over the superficial stuff. So, you know, to me, even if this interview never aired, it would have been a meaningful experience. You can see which Starbucks he's visited near you. We will have a link to his website at ctpublic.org slash audacious. This show is always so very lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. If you like this coffee-centric episode, check out the one we did about people who often serve coffee with the founder of the International Butler Academy in the Netherlands. Or for something completely different... You know Flo from Progressive and the Can You Hear Me Now guy? Well, they joined us to talk about what it's like to forever be a face associated with a brand. You can hear them wherever your thumb reflexively goes on your phone when it's time to listen to a podcast. Stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kion Wolf, And you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Starbucks where the Starbucks used to be